Welcome to the What The Mum podcast. My name is Maria Newman and I will be your host. Every mum-to-be knows that as soon as she becomes a mum, her world will change forever. Everyone is keen to give you advice based on their own experiences. Other mums delight in sharing their horror stories so that new mums are better prepared for what might happen. The lack of sleep, feeling exhausted most of the time, living in bodies with even more wobbly bits and never having any privacy. But everyone's story is unique. Everyone's experience is personal. On this podcast, I will be sharing real stories told by mums like you and I about their experience of motherhood and how life changes when you become a mum. This podcast is about showing you that you're not alone. We may not be in the same boat, but we are experiencing a similar storm. I hope these stories will inspire you to do what you want and be who you want to be. Anything is possible if you really want it and if it is really important to you. If you want to find out more about me and who I am, check out my website, mummyandabreak.co.uk. However, for now, sit back, relax and enjoy this podcast episode. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. During this podcast series, I will be interviewing six awesome women who will be sharing with us their mum stories. My guest today is Stephanie Gusing, author of Eyeless Mind, a memoir about seeing and being seen, and who I connected with only a few months ago. Thanks, Stephanie, for joining me today. Well, thank you, Maria. It is absolutely wonderful to be here. And I just want to thank you for having me on your show and giving me this opportunity to talk about cerebral slash cortical visual impairment or CVI. Thank you, Stephanie. So first of all, before we dive into it, tell us a bit about who you are so we can get a sense of you. Sure. So I'm a former music teacher. I taught middle school music and chorus for 10 years before taking some time off when I had my son. And um, after I had my son, I became a early childhood music and movement specialist. I taught the children's choir at my church. First, it was just kindergartners, and then it became K through two. And so my whole life, my whole professional life has revolved around teaching people to sing. I taught private voice and ran a studio from my home and a music garden um, uh, studio as well. So I had classes for infants, preschoolers, toddlers, and it was just absolutely beautiful. And then in 2017, um, we discovered that my straight A honor student, genius artist and water polo playing son Sebastian was almost completely blind and no one knew, not even Sebastian himself. And it was devastating. I can't even begin to tell you how devastating this was. We had no idea that my son had any disability of any kind. And so um, I'll go into more of that later, but I'll tell you, I am the author of Eyeless Mind, a memoir about seeing and being seen, which is the true story of how I, an ordinary music teacher, made a major medical discovery in the field of visual neuroplasticity. And um, yeah, so what I do now is I am an author, international advocate and speaker on the cerebral slash cortical visual impairment and also on verbal mediation as a means of processing vision. So that's what I do, and that's why I'm here today. So thank you for having me on your show. 
You're most welcome. So before we dive into talking about your son, I want to get a sense of what it's like for you being a mum, because obviously putting your son to one side a second, you are his mum. You will be going through your own emotions from the point of when you found out to what you deal with now. So tell me and tell us what it's like being a mum. Well, I'll tell you right now, I'm an empty nester, and it is absolutely fabulous. <laughs> and I and I say that from the perspective of a parent who overnight, um, we went from being what we thought were just the parents of an extremely gifted child to becoming the parents of a, a child that we thought may never be able to live independently. And so we had an enormous struggle to be able to get a diagnosis for my son because there's no diagnostic code for CVI. And it was just absolutely horrific. And we had more than $150,000 in medical bills just trying to get a diagnosis for what turned out to be a common visual impairment. So it was a very trying, traumatic time. And I'm telling you now, the fact that my son is able to go out into the world blind and is able to go to university and is successful in school. It is such a huge relief as a parent to have that experience. And so I will tell you, I am loving being an empty nester because my son is able to live independently. And we are so aware of how incredibly lucky we are because many parents of, of children who have CVI are not so fortunate. They, children who have CVI often have epilepsy and cerebral palsy and many other conditions as well. It's a brain-based vision impairment caused by brain damage. And so we are extremely aware of how incredibly lucky we are that my son is okay living on his own. He has his own apartment with his friends. He's at school having a great time. And so that allows me to be on my own and doing my own thing as well. So it's all good for everybody. Now, I know people who are listening to this are going to be saying, Stephanie, you keep on saying that your son is blind. So that conjures up a vision of someone who literally can see nothing. So for those of us, which it will be many of us who don't quite understand what your son is going through, keep it really, really simple and tell us what he's actually seeing or not seeing all right well that's there's very hard to make a description of cvi very very simple because it's a complex condition but i'm going to explain it as simply as i can first of all cvi is a brain-based vision impairment that's entirely different from ocular blindness and i want to dispel some myths about ocular blindness as well the vast majority of people who have ocular forms of blindness have some vision very, very few ocularly blind people have everything completely dark. That's a real myth about being blind. And so blindness is a spectrum. And our definitions of legal blindness were in the US created 100 years ago, and they're just 100 years out of date. And they're based entirely on ocular blindness. But the reality is, and I was just listening to um, a lecture given by Dr. Arvind Channa and Dr. Gordon Dutton, experts in CVI. And Dr. Channa was talking about how when light hits the eye and hits the back of the eye, it is transmitted into an electrical signal that travels through the optic nerve past the lateral geniculate nuclei or the LGN and goes to the back of the brain. 
and it takes approximately a tenth of a second between the time that light hits the eye and the signal reaches the back of the brain before there's any conscious perception of sight. And so what that means is our eyes see nothing on their own. We do not see with our eyes. Our eyes are just light collectors and signal transmitters. All of our seeing, our conscious seeing happens in our brain, just like all of our sense of touch happens in our brain and our hearing, all of our hearing processing happens in our brain. Our senses are processed there. And so it's very much a, a, a misleading idea to think that we see with our eyes. There are actually human beings alive right now on this planet who have no eyes who can see. And I'll just briefly mention Daniel Kish lost both eyes to cancer in infancy, and he taught himself to echolocate. And Daniel has no eyes, and he can ride a bike, and he has no eyes, and he can read if the letters are three-dimensional. And he literally teaches blind children how to echolocate. And um, I had a lovely conversation not too long ago with Brian Bushway, who is one of his students, who also echolocates and is ocularly blind. So the point is, when they put Daniel Kish in the fMRI, which is a functional MRI, and it looks at what the brain is actually doing, not just what it looks like, Daniel's visual cortex lights up when he hears echoes, not when he hears ordinary sounds. So he is literally seeing with sound. So my son is the only person in the world known to process his vision verbally, which means that he literally sees with words like a bat sees with sound. And what that means is, before I explain that, I know everybody's going, oh my gosh, <laughs> what on earth is that? <laughs> right. So Dr. Latvi Maribet, who is the director of the, Shep, um, the Laboratory for Visual Neuroplasticity at the Shep and Zye Research Institute, and also Associate Professor of Ophthalmology at Harvard Medical School, and also Associate Scientist at Massachusetts Eye and Ear, he captured Sebastian's use of verbal mediation to process his vision in the fMRI, just like with Daniel Kish, they captured his echolocation in the fMRI. And he published a paper on it in Neurobiologia in collaboration with Dr. Barry Cran, who's the director of the New England Eye Low Vision Clinic at the Perkins School for the Blind. And so I will put a link to that in the show notes. So for those of you going, I cannot believe that this is real. Yes, it's real. <laughs> so now back to your ex to explaining about CVI. It's a brain-based vision impairment, right? So we see with our brains. We don't see with our eyes. And our brains have different parts of our brains recognize and do different functions for vision. More than 40% of our brains are involved in visual processing. It's an enormous amount of brain power that goes into seeing more than 40%. So when we talked about that signal going through the optic nerve and landing in the back of the brain, that's the beginning of visual processing where motion is processed. And then there are two streams of vision. The part of what happens next is the signals are sent through what's called the dorsal stream of the brain. And the dorsal stream, if you think about the dorsal fin of a shark, it's the part of the brain processing that goes up the back and across the top of the head. And that's where things like analyzing a scene takes place. And so people who have damage to the dorsal stream of their visual processing often have difficulty in a crowded environment. They couldn't maybe pick out a face in a crowd. They could have real severe problems doing an activity like, I don't know if you remember those Where's Waldo children's books where you have to find Waldo in a very crowded scene, right? In, in England, we have Where's Wally. Where's Wally, yes. So it's... <laughs> 
it's actually physically painful to people who have dorsal stream impairment to try to do an activity like that. Going to the grocery store where there's stuff all over the shelves is like, where's Waldo for someone who has dorsal stream impairment. So that's part of visual processing. The visual signals also travel through the center of the brain through what we call the ventral stream. And the ventral stream is where visual recognition takes place. And so if you take your right hand and you touch above and behind your right ear, that's where the right fusiform gyrus of the brain is. And that's where facial recognition takes place. So if you have damage to the right fusiform gyrus of your brain, people who have damage there often have something called prosopagnosia, which is face blindness. And back in 2017, we had no idea about any of this. I'd never heard of face blindness or CVI. I didn't know it was possible for a human being to be face blind. But my son is face blind, and so he has no ability to recognize his face or anybody else's. People who have face blindness also very frequently have something called topographical agnosia. So there's prosopagnosia, which is face blindness, and topographical agnosia, which is environmental blindness. And that means that no matter how many times you walk into a room or an area or a street, it doesn't matter how many times you are exposed visually to this information, no visual memory of your environment ever takes place. And so nothing ever looks familiar ever, ever. And so my son also has topographical agnosia. And so he has no ability to create a mental map of his world because he has nothing, he has no visual landmarks because no visual memory of his surroundings ever happens. So in addition to that, there's also object agnosia which is inability to recognize objects that happens in a separate location of the brain. And then there is um, what we call, um, an in I can't remember the term for it, but it's an inability to recognize biological forms. So my son actually has no ability to recognize his hands, face or body or anybody else's. It's not just his face. So, or that of a, a rabbit or a cow or anything like that. He can't recognize that stuff like a typically sighted person does because the area of his brain that um, recognizes those things is damaged. The only things that my son can recognize like a typically sighted person can are words, letters, numbers, and simple shapes. And, and so from that point of view, is that one of the reasons why he's excelled from an academic point of view? Oh, it's the reason, because he had visual access to numeracy and literacy. And I will tell you, it is common for children and people who have CVI to have normal acuity. And so my blind son passed every vision test every year because he has visual access to numeracy and literacy. However, just because my son did doesn't mean that every CVIer does. And I'll be totally honest with you, I'm friends with another mom who discovered their child um, has CVI just this past school year at the age of 12. And it's totally common because there's no diagnostic code for people to go for years, even into adulthood, missing undiagnosed. This happens all the time. And her child is even more blind than my son is and has no ability to recognize words, letters, numbers like that. And so this child, the mom is brilliant and the child is brilliant. And they have done absolutely every reading intervention under the sun and Four, five months ago, they started Braille. And for the very first time, this child is reading at grade level. And wow. so 
Yeah, just because my son, we're very, very lucky. It was just random chance that the area of my brain, my son's brain that recognizes symbols, right, was not damaged like the area that recognizes faces. And so he was actually reading and reading and writing at the age of two and a half and was reading and understanding the original Nancy Drew stories that I remember struggling with as like a second and third grader <laughs> when he was four. So he sailed academically through school because he can see words and letters and numbers. So I haven't forgotten your original question. You asked, what is his vision like? So my son, on top of having face blindness and object blindness and environmental blindness. He has another condition which is common for CVI and it's called simultanagnosia. And I can't speak for every person who has simultanagnosia because every person who has CVI has a different experience of their vision depending on where their brain damage is. But for my son, he describes his visual world as like being in a alternate universe where nothing ever looks familiar except for words, letters, numbers, and simple shapes. And so his simultanagnosia, I think most typically sighted people understand what tunnel vision is. Tunnel vision is a type of ocular blindness, and that's where everything is dark except for this tunnel mm. in the sky through which there's normal acuity, right? Simultanagnosia is similar, except the area around the outside, which everybody thinks would be dark, is not dark. It's incredibly blurry. And so for my son, he has this he lives in this colorful moving fog of blur that is completely almost totally useless information of just the too blurry to use, but it's just colorful and moving unrecognizable fog. And then in the very center, he has a teeny tiny patch of acuity. And through that, it's like if you could imagine looking through a McDonald's coffee straw, not like the regular Coke straws, but like a little coffee straw. He has this tiny little patch of acuity in the center. And through that little patch of clearness, the only things that he can recognize the way we do are words and letters and numbers and simple shapes. So if you can imagine being out on a boat in the middle of an ocean in this colorful swirling fog of nothingness where you can't see anything except for this swirling fog of color. And every once in a while, a street sign floats by. And every once in a while, a book floats by and all you, you don't see the book, you just see the title of the book as it floats by. And so that's what his vision is like. And so my son is the only person in the world known to be able to see or not see with his eyes wide open. They captured that in the fMRI. He uses an enormous memorized verbal taxonomy of descriptors to identify everything and everyone that he encounters in daily life. His life is, he basically has to guess who and what everything around him is all the time, every waking moment, by the way we describe them. In the way you've described it there in that last bit, I, I can't imagine being in his shoes, seeing or seeing what he's seeing as far as um, like you, your description of the blurriness, but the pinpoint of accuracy for certain things, like you said, the words and the letters and the symbol. So right. te when, when was it that you realized that something wasn't quite right? So 
my son was repeatedly misdiagnosed, which is also completely common. And the first time I realized that there might be something off with my son was when he was about two and a half, three years old, he started to express anxiety when we were going to visually complex areas like the grocery store or to gymnastics class. And he called it a game. He said, I'm, he called it the I'm nervous game. That was his word for it. And so he would just, we'd get in the car to go to the grocery store and he'd say, I'm nervous, mom. I'm nervous. And I'd be like, well, why are you nervous? I mean, that makes no sense. We're going to the grocery store. We go every week, you know, and he could not explain because all people who are born with CVI assume that their vision is typical. They have no way of knowing that their vision is different because they've never experienced anything else. Mm. And so all he knew was that going into this incredibly visually crowded environment, like where's Waldo, when he can't recognize anything except for, you know, and he was just a little one, right? So he was just learning to read, right? So it was overwhelming and terrifying. And people who have CVI often experience this effect called looming, which is where you know, because they have so little vision to begin with, like a lot of stuff is just that could be right in front of them isn't even in their awareness because they're trying to figure out something else that is also right in front of them. And then all of a sudden that other thing like pops into their visual awareness and it's right there in their face, you know? And so it's very, very traumatic and very scary for people who have CVI who go undiagnosed. It's very, imagine being blind and having absolutely nobody around you understand that you're almost completely blind. And know? how, so how were you feeling? Cause obviously your son's, um, you can visibly see how traumatic this is. Right. You're his mother and you know, our instinct is we wanna protect our children. How are you feeling? Well, at that point when he was three, I was mystified. You know, I was just absolutely mystified because here's my son that I don't know is blind, who we, we have photo after photo of my blind son who can't recognize his face or anybody else's making regular consistent eye contact from birth. You know, we have, my son had all normal developmental milestones. He took the training wheels off his bike when he was four. We had no idea that there was anything wrong with him. And so I was mystified. And I remember going to his pediatrician and being like, you know, he's expressing anxiety about going places. And the pediatrician looks at my son and is like, well, he's making, you know, he's making eye contact. He's academically gifted. He's already reading and writing at the age of two and a half. This kid's fine, you know? And so we were told, oh, it's, you know, seeking negative attention, just distract him with something else. And so that's what I did. And he stopped doing it. He wasn't having meltdowns. He wasn't having temper tantrums. It was just a weird little thing that he did. And then when he went off to school, he started preschool at the age of three. My son experienced separation anxiety, what appeared to be mostly mild separation anxiety, but he cried at drop-off every single day for two solid years and then most of kindergarten as well. And that was also concerning. I was very concerned for him and very mystified because here's my kid who makes friends easily and has all of his best, very best friends that he absolutely loves in the class with him. 
that he's played with since he was a baby, you know, and he loves his teacher and he's very academically able and is way ahead of the other kids. And he loves the toys that are there at the school, you know, and so it's like, it makes absolutely no sense why my kid is crying at drop off. And so again, here I am asking the teacher, asking the doctor, why is my kid crying at drop off? And they're like, oh, don't worry about it. Some kids just do this. And we worry about the ones who can't settle down. Well, my son always settled down right away. And so it was brushed off and swept under the carpet because CVI can be an entirely invisible disability. There's no way to tell from looking at my son academically, physically, socially, that he's almost entirely blind. There's no way to tell if you met him, you would not know. And so it's an invisible disability. It got swept under the carpet. And then finally, when um, he was going into, when he was in his third grade, he finished the fourth grade math book first quarter of third grade without any so, help. For, for those of us that don't know third grade, fourth grade, what age is that? Uh, let's see, that'd be, I think that's eight. Eight, okay. Eight approximately, yeah. So yeah, so it's kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade. And so he was in his third grade. So, and he just, he finished the fourth grade math book first quarter of third grade. He'd already been identified, especially as gifted. And his gifted teacher came flying out of the school building without her code when it was freezing cold out right before Christmas to tell me this news. I had no idea. And, and said that well, he, he needs to be advanced to grade because they can't meet his academic needs in the level that he's in, right? And so here I am just shocked. Like I didn't even know he was doing that, right? So we actually fought the grade promotion for social reasons. He had a really great group of core friends in the grade he was in. And we literally didn't know any of the kids in the grade above. So I was like, I don't want to separate him from his friends, right? So we fought it and we ended up acquiescing because it turned out to be the least bad of the three options that the school gave us. And it worked out beautifully for my son, okay? However, when he went through the grade promotion process, they scrutinize every aspect of a child's development, academically, emotionally, socially, and physically. And my son sailed through it without any person having any qualms in any area. And so he was literally analyzed and nobody suspected anything. And he sailed through the great promotion. That's how invisible his form of verbal, the way he sees with words makes his disability, you can't tell. And so, however, I wanna say he was also misdiagnosed again because part of the process of great promotion is getting a IQ test. And, and my son got his IQ test. My son has always scored in the 99th percentile in both language and mathematics on all standardized testing without any coaching on our part. He's just gifted. And we've never had to do any coaching with him ever. In fact, I'm actually not a homework mom. I think it's a ridiculous thing before you're 12 years old. So, I mean, this didn't come from us. It's just the way he is. And we're lucky. So here he so is. he's passing, sorry, Stephanie. So he's passing everything. Yes. And it just, from what you're saying, it just feels like there's, there's nothing. What might have been, let's call it a blip when he was two years old, right. seems to not be visible right. throughout and his childhood. So at what point did, did something happen where you went, oh, no, hang on a second. 
what time do we discover it or do you want me yeah, to tell? discover it yeah sure yeah okay so he was 15 and so um he was 15 years old and we just happened to be going through old photos and I am that mom who made my son a baby book and then did nothing else with our photos ever again because <laughs> I'm not crafty so I made him a baby book and I was really proud that I got that far so um, we were looking at pictures we had not looked at for years, and my son is an only child. And because we hadn't looked at the pictures in so long, and because our family is scattered all over the place, and there's a lot of people we don't see very often, you know, it might be 10 years before we see some of these people. And so I was narrating to him about who is in the pictures, because there's so many people he wouldn't remember. And so it's like, oh, look, there you are with your cousins from Canada that we haven't seen for seven years. And oh, look, there you are with our neighbors from the first house we lived in when you were a baby that you haven't seen since you were a baby, you know. So I was doing that kind of thing for about half an hour. And we kind of migrated our way up out of the baby pictures into the toddler preschool years when suddenly this gorgeous picture of him showed up on the screen at about three years old. And now my son has been looking at pictures of his own face now for half an hour. And I said, oh, look, who's that? And there was crickets. And finally, he just said, how would I know? <laughs> and remember in 2017, I'd never heard of CVI. I'd never heard of face blindness. I didn't know it was possible to be face blind. I had no idea. And so I still, the hair on my back just, stands up when I tell this story because I it just was so bizarre to me it was so I had just I didn't know about it and so and at this point he's 15 years old yes and my son is a gifted artist and he draws and paints faces and everything else that interests him with photographic realism when he wants to so I was like <laughs> how you know how could that's you is what I said it's you. And so then I started quizzing him about the other people in the pictures, myself, my husband, you know, mm. family members, all of us 15 years younger, thinner, less gray hair, but still obviously us, you know, and he was guessing. He was obviously guessing, accurately guessing, but he very obviously did not know for sure. And so that's when I was like, this is not typical. And I wasn't scared because it was more of a quirk. I'm like, okay, my son's got this odd quirk. It's obviously neurological, I can tell, you know, but it's not frightening. It's just this weird quirk. So it was close to bedtime. Everybody went to bed and I immediately start researching on my phone, Googling everything I can about facial recognition. And there was very little information about CVI back then that I could find. And it took me quite a long time because everything about facial recognition was coming up about facial recognition software, which was not what I wanted. <laughs> so finally I found it and I was like, oh, prosopagnosia, it's a real thing. This is real, he has a real thing. And according to what I learned back in 2017, which was wrong, it was very, very rare. And I'm like, oh, okay. So my son has this very rare, rare weird quirk, but he's fine, you know, it's, he's fine. You know, so I was <clears throat> soothed, you know, but then the very next day we discovered that my son had taught himself to navigate by counting his steps and turns and had been navigating our own home, our small neighborhood and his extremely architecturally complex high school that way. And we had no idea. And that's when I got scared for his safety because I was like, he's planning to go off to college in the city of Chicago, right? 
And I'm like, I cannot. Not a small place. (laughs) Traffic and buses. You know, and here he is navigating by counting his steps and turns. This is not safe. He's obviously, and of course, through my research the night before, I already knew about topographic agnosia. So I knew he could not see his environment. Obviously, he couldn't make a mental map of the world. The way we make a mental map of the world is we recognize things. Mm. We recognize that building on the corner with the sign next to the tree. And then we can picture where that building is in relationship to where the gas station is down the street. And we can imagine where our sofa is and we can picture where our powder room is in relationship to that sofa, right? People who have topographical agnosia cannot do any of that. So they can't build a mental map of the world. They just can't because they can't picture any of it and they can't connect where one thing is to another thing in spatial relationships. And so that ability is gone. And so I knew my son had to get a diagnosis and I knew that he needed to have orientation and mobility training like an ocularly blind person Mm. would have he could not make mental maps and he needed to learn how to use his phone to navigate using Google Maps because he could read his phone. We knew he had normal acuity. We knew he could recognize words and letters and simple shapes and things like that. Just not his environment. Yeah. Yeah. So this, I immediately made a doctor's appointment with his neuropsychologist who'd done a full neuropsych evaluation on my son just like a few weeks before for a totally unrelated concussion. And I was using the correct medical terminology to describe my son's symptoms at this very first appointment. And the doctor looked at me like I was a lunatic and said, I can't help you. And I don't know anyone who can. Good luck with that. And And how were you feeling at that point? When you hear those words as a mom, what's going through your head? It was just devastating because then... That, that day when we discovered the topographical agnosia, everything made sense. The crying at drop-off at preschool, the I'm nervous game. It's like, oh my goodness, my son is literally blind to his environment. No wonder he cried, right? And what we know now is that all people, I know many people in the CVI community, many of them adults who often went into adulthood undiagnosed, misdiagnosed with autism, misdiagnosed with everything except CVI. And all of them suffered tremendous trauma for not getting orientation and mobility training with the white cane. It is terrifying to be blind and to not have people know that and give you the help you need. Imagine Imagine you're blind and everybody around you thinks you're typically sighted and you have no idea who or what anything around you is. And you are wandering around and everybody's just thinking, oh, well, he's fine, you know? And we know crying is communication. It tells you that there's something wrong. My son did not outgrow his separation anxiety. He didn't get over it. learned at a very early age that telling adults that he was scared did not help and he stopped talking about it and so it is terrible no i can i can see it then you it's obviously still raw now because he's your he, although he's an adult now he'll always be your baby well, and knowing what he's gone through and the fact that he felt like nobody could hear him so he just modified his behavior right he just tried to fit in and that's what kids and adults with cvi do 
And that's why I do this because I know there are so many other people out there that are suffering. I know that as a fact because CVI was identified as the number one cause of visual impairment in the developed world. It is more common than ocular blindness. The New York Times ran a story the other day. Remember when I told you that I, when I learned about Sebastian's face blindness, I was told it was very, very rare. Well, according to the New York Times just the other day, one in 30 people has it. It is so common. It's a common symptom of a common visual impairment. And we were labeled crazy by the medical establishment. We bounced from doctor to doctor to doctor. We saw optometrists, neurooptometrists, ophthalmologists, neurooptomologists, neurologists, neuropsychologists. And we traveled across the country looking for anyone who could, I, who could diagnose my son and prescribe a couple of weeks of orientation and mobility training services. And we were treated like dangerous criminals. We were repeatedly verbally and emotionally abused. I was actually physically threatened by a neuro-ophthalmologist we'd never even met in front of my blind son. He walked into the appointment that way and without introducing himself, screamed at me and put his my face in front of my kid. Yeah. I mean, we had a horrific time, $150,000 in medical bills trying to get a diagnosis for something that's more common than ocular blindness in developed nations. It is so more common. Stephanie, there will be parents listening and watching this and thinking, I that, that's me. I feel like what Stephanie is saying, she's describing where mm -hmm. we're at. Yeah. Can, give us some help and I know we're going to put it in the notes later but what can someone do what can a parent do if they've noticed that something isn't quite right but everything at the same time seems fine what mm -hmm. one piece of advice would you give them so and I'm just applying this to anything not necessarily CVI what saved us was the fact that I documented everything once we discovered Sebastian's face blindness, uh, after we'd been through a couple of bad doctor's appointments, I was like, because at first I was just like, oh, well, this is a real thing. It might be really, really rare, but it's a real thing and it's not a big deal. We're not asking for like illegal drugs or to have, you know, his limbs removed or something, you know, like, <laughs> which just, this is two weeks of orientation and mobility training. It should not be a big deal, you know, and it's, so what if it's rare? People do have rare stuff, right? I just was not prepared for how difficult this journey would be. Mm -hmm. So it took me a couple of really bad doctor's appointments before I was like, oh, I really need to start documenting because this is not going well. And so I retroactively went back to like everything I could remember from how we discovered it initially. And I documented what we, how we figured it out. And, it, you know, I just sat at my computer and I just wrote a paragraph about that night. And, you know, the next day, like you know, several paragraphs about the next day when we discovered he was counting his steps and turns, you know, and then each of the doctor's appointments, what was said, what I said, what they told us, you know, and, and, and as we went through one doctor's appointment after another, after another, it just became more and more important to document. And so I have 36 single spaced type pages of documentation of what it took to get a diagnosis for the most common visual impairment in the developed world. And I documented not only just like the date and time and the name of who we saw, but I documented like what was said, you know, and what crazy things they told us. We were told that antidepressants would cure my son's brain damage. 
you know, that it was impossible for my son to have CBI because he was academically successful, you know, and I'm like, there are other academically successful people out there who have CBI that are famous. For example, Dr. Oliver Sacks, the famous neuropsychologist who wrote The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. And Dr. Sachs had CVI. The movie Awakenings was based on his life. And he had prosopagnosia and he was face blind and he had topographical agnosia and he had no ability to recognize his surroundings or navigate. And he's famous and he's been on NPR and written countless books. And, you know, it's just like my son has the same thing as Dr. Oliver Sachs. This is not, he's not the first. And in fact, we've known about CVI since World War I. It has been known and studied since World War I for a hundred years. This is not new information. So it's, it's all about building up that body of evidence. If when you're with your child, yeah. you realize that something isn't how it should be, it's right. starting to build up that body of evidence so that when you're going to see different people, it's not just a, a one-off something happened. Oh, and now everything's okay. It's building up that body of evidence so that people can see the progress and go, no, this has happened multiple times and this is when it happens and how it happens. Yeah. Now we are coming to the end of our podcasting um, recording today. I've loved talking to you, but our listeners and our watch and those who are watching this are going to be thinking, I need to connect with Stephanie. I need to find out more. I want to know her story. She's got lots of knowledge. Make it easy for them. How can they connect with you? Well, thank you. I want to say thank you so much for having me today. It has been my great honor to be a guest on your show. And thank you. Thank you. Um, to get a hold of me, absolutely feel free to reach out. My website is stephaniedusing.com. So it's S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E. -E, and then my last name is Dusing, D as in David, U-E, S as in Sam, I-N-G. And if you can't remember that, you can maybe remember the name of my book, which is Eyeless Mind, like as in the mind's eye, Eyeless Mind. If you Google either one of those, it will take you to my website and there's a contact me there on the form. So feel free to reach out. I'd be happy to connect you to information more about CBI. So, um, and there'll be lots of show notes with resources for parents who might be concerned that their child might be misdiagnosed. So um, please look in the show notes because I'll have links there for you for factual information about CBI. So I'd like to say thank you, Stephanie, for taking the time to talk to us and share your story with us. And thank you, everyone, for watching and listening. I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast episode. And if you did, then, of course, please share it with other mums. I have lots more resources for you that will help you on your journey through life. Just visit my website to access them, which is mummyonabreak.co.uk. You can also find out details about my book busy. Take care and see you the next time. <music>